So, well, uh, yeah. <laughs> for the next, for the next song that we'd like to sing, this is one in which, yeah, okay, hang on. Shh. Hang on. This is a song. This is Shut a song. Up, Polly's talking. Yeah. She, <laughs> this is a. This is a song in which we'd like you all to join in if you would. Just sort of clap your hands. Just clap your hands. Clap your hands. And clap your hands. Okay. I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Tarras. I'm Alan Cozen. I'm Craig Bartok. The Beatles. Naked. Cheaper seats, clap your hands. <laughs> and the rest of you, if you just rattle your jewelry. She's a big teaser.
This is Tommy Charles. Doug Layton and I are, as you may have heard, leading a protest against the Beatles because of certain anti-Christian and anti-American statements they made, which appeared in the National Teenage Magazine. But this is your fight, not ours. We are only the leaders. If you, as an American teenager, are offended by statements from a group of foreign singers which strike at the very basis of our existence as God-fearing, patriotic citizens, then we urge you to take your Beatle records, pictures, and souvenirs to the pickup points about to be named, and on the night of the Beatles' appearance in Memphis, August 19th, they will be destroyed in a huge public bonfire at a place to be named soon. Stay tuned to Wacky for further developments. I'm not saying that we're better or greater or comparing us with Jesus Christ as a person or God as a thing or whatever it is. You know, I just said what I said and it was wrong or was taken wrong and now it's all this. Or a fish and finger pies in summer Oh, you know, I mean, if I was to say where I got it from, you know, it's illegal and everything. It's silly to say that. But as a public figure, surely you've got a responsibility to lots and no, lots of No, it's you've got the responsibility. You've got the responsibility not to spread this now. You know, I'm quite prepared to keep it as a very personal thing, if you will too. If you'll shut up about it, I will. Naked album cover, we felt like two virgins. That's what the album was called because we were in love, just met, and we were trying to make something. Don't dig no Pakistanis taking all the people's jobs. No, get back! Get back! Get back to where you once belong. Just the part of Liverpool, did it damn me too? Two pounds and a week. I've got a Everybody had a hard year Everybody had a good time Everybody had a wet dream 
Delighted to have met you, Madam New. Who do you write your cartoons for? I write my cartoons for money, just as you sing your songs. Exactly the same reason. Yeah, and exactly the same reason much of this is happening too, if the truth be told. But if do you think Martian... I couldn't earn money by some other way, by sitting in bed for seven days taking shit from people like you? I could, I could write a song in an hour right, and earn now, a lot of money. Now look here, now don't say this. You got into bed so people like me yeah, would right. see you. Not for money. Come together right now over me. Here we are. 50 years later with fuck you and we shouldn't be surprised should we because the trend started a long time ago well wasn't the first one of the first uh, apple singles was the king of fa there you go i'll hail the fucking yeah <laughs> this show is about the beatles you know some of the things were politically correct as far as we're concerned or politically incorrect and that's obviously changed with the ages you know with the times and so it, with this show, I think, you know, we have to dive deep into what the context was um, because, you know, I, I get hassled today for sharing the views of the Beatles by other Beatles fans with right wing views who are kind of coming after me and attacking me. And it's like, well, why are you a Beatles fan then? You know, there was one guy online who said to me, it's ridiculous to protest. And his profile picture was John Lennon. <laughs> and I said, well, why have you got Lennon as your profile picture? And he said, good point. Well, I would ask you this then, Richard. Now, and, and of course, that is a ridiculous uh, an example. You're, you're completely correct there. But it does beg an interesting question, or it introduces an interesting question. I, for example, really enjoy the music of Pink Floyd. I think Roger Waters is a despicable character. I really, I've, I thought so when he was spitting on his audiences. So, you know, does that mean by liking Dark Side of the Moon, does that mean I support his uh, anti-Semitic ranting online? Mm -hmm. No. So, I mean... Well, we, but your, your collection of Hitler paintings suggests that. <laughs> a bit of a disconnect. But they're know, velvet, it's okay. Before he embraced <laughs> the dark side, uh, I think the dangerous thing about what we're doing right now and I feel like I have to introduce this in case anyone else doesn't at the outset, is we are in a period now where it seems to be very au courant to judge figures and events of the past with today's mores. Mm. And I think that's an exceedingly dangerous thing. And as we go through this process today, I'm going to point out a couple of things that are, you know, um, an example of why you, you can't really do that. But it's, you know... No pun intended. 
<laughs> it's a disease. I've, I've tried to say this, Craig. It seriously is a disease. I have a pun disease. Anyway, in the case of the people who are, are trolling you, uh, is it part of the Beatle experience that we must embrace? Uh, you know, in other words, if it's all like the parts that we focus on, the positive ones, the peace and love, does that mean everybody buys in or is it uh, I think you and I had this discussion uh, uh, very briefly when we were doing uh, show ideas, Richard, that I would ask those trolls, okay, if you're not all on board with you know peace and love and togetherness, and uh, what is it that you're getting out of it? Is it just entertainment? Is you know, and that's fine. Is it uh, catchy tunes and nice, nicely recorded music that you reverberates with you and reminds me you of your youth? And that's it. The message, in a sense, or the the politics of the people involved, don't resonate with you at all. Listen, people are allowed to be Beatles fans and have whatever political views they want. My problem is that they're attacking me for sharing the political stance of the Beatles. It's like, you know, don't have a go at me about it. It's just part of the insanity of our times. It really is. Yeah. But I, I mean, I suppose we could start with, you know, what was the first political incorrectness by the Beatles sort of publicly? And early on, we've got Lennon with the, you know, the spastic impersonations, the cripple impersonations on stage and in front of the cameras. Um, I don't think that would have been great at any time, okay, because obviously, you know, the people who are unfortunate enough to be disabled, I don't know how they would have found that funny. But it was a different time. I've been watching some of the old 1950s US broadcasts of What's My Line? And the amount of fat shaming oh, yeah. on that show, oh, yeah. you know, where guests, you know, guests come on and they're oversized and the panel are quite happy to be saying things like, oh, you know, you're blocking the light and the audience laughs and, and the poor embarrassed guest has to be a good sport and smile at least. Um, did it hurt as much then? for them you know to be the the butt of those jokes i don't know um it couldn't have felt good so you know what lennon was doing wasn't great but again i see people online comparing him to donald trump and that's exactly what you were saying eric you know applying the mores of today i think so i think there's a big difference between what lennon did and what trump did when he imitated a new york times reporter with a disability and what Lenin was doing was, I mean, okay, if if you were disabled and or, or spastic, whatever you would say, I mean, that was the language of that time, and you're in the audience, yeah, it's going to feel uncomfortable. But Trump was singling out a specific person, yeah, and belittling him on those grounds. So I think that's a difference. It may not be a huge difference in, in a way, but it is, I think, significant. And, uh, you know, Lenin was, what, what Lenin was doing was basically carrying on uh, the kind of behavior that he would have done as a kid in school where, you know, kids in school are horribly mean creatures. You know, they just are. Uh, and I think the sort of movement now is to try to make them not be horribly mean creatures, <laughs> but they but, but they, they fundamentally are. And basically, you know, when, when we were kids in school in the, for me, the late 50s, early 60s, uh, you know, people made fun of you for various things. They might make fun of you for being fat. They might make fun of you for 
being clumsy in gym for for whatever it is and you know you basically just sort of sucked it up yeah. you know and you moved on mm. and these days um kids are not expected to be able to suck it up and move on and, and it extends to the point where you have say a, a baseball game in a school and there's no winner and no loser because we don't have winners and losers that's mm. you know <laughs> yeah uh so but yeah, I I'd, I'd be lying if I was to say that I never found it funny. I did find it funny. You know, I, I see now the other side of it, um, but I did find it funny. Of course, I wasn't the butt of, of his jokes. I don't think I've always said that with John Lennon. You know, I'm, I remember my second ever interview was with Keith Hartley, the drummer, who was one of the replacements for Ringo in Rory Storm and the Hurricanes and he was talking about hanging out in Liverpool around the clubs and seeing the Beatles and I remember saying to him oh great so you hung around with them and he said oh god no you know I'd stay out of John Lennon's way because if he perceived a weakness in you he'd be all over you in front of everyone else so you know he was just bad news and so as much as I love John I have to say if back then I was the butt of his cruel humor, I don't know how much I'd have loved him. Yeah. Well, well, uh, that discussion came up. We have two famous Beatles authors with us today. There's a third one that's pretty well known, too. And, and he and I were having a discussion about this, doing the spaz dance every night on stage in the 64 tour. And, you know, that whole thing, contorting his face in front of the camera, if anyone held a shot on him too long on one of those, you know, newsreels, Pathé or whatever. And I, he got very upset at me for even introducing the idea that there could have been some mean-spiritedness behind this mockery and, and don't dare bring him up in the context of uh, President Trump. This was more Lenin's dealing with his own inner demons and his own mm. frailties, which I thought yeah. was interesting. I don't believe—I I, I respect this guy as much as anyone on the planet, but um, I don't agree. I, I do think it was a combination of those things, I was, you know. This is, as I say, the moving target that we are doing today. You know, back then, as you say, the fat shaming and stuff, it just wasn't uh, in the consciousness. I think if if it had been brought to Lenin's consciousness, I don't think he would have done it, really, at least not to the same degree. you got to go through those times to come out the other side and say, oh, wait a minute. That that's I'm not comfortable with that anymore. I don't like that anymore. And Lenin was really great later in his life at at owning up to his, uh, you know, to his shortcomings, and and saying, you know, I was a violent man who you know hit women and fought men, and I learned to be peaceful. So uh, so keep that in mind as we go. Yeah, I think the other thing to keep in mind, and it's not a defense of him, but is that I think Lenin was the king of the cheap shot. Okay, so. I don't think he was racist. I don't think he was anti-Semitic. But there would be racist and anti-Semitic statements coming out of him if he thought, again, he was exploiting someone's weakness. I mean, there's that story which may well be apocryphal. You know, it was in the Philip Norman Shout book, so take that with a pinch of salt. But there's the one where Brian, full of pretensions, is, you know, working on his autobiography with Derek Taylor and he sort of announces it quite grandly that the book's going to be coming out and what should the title be. And according to Philip Norman, Lennon just shot back with Queer Jew, uh, which sort of basically encapsulates him perfectly, right? What are the two weak spots as John perceives it socially? Yeah. <laughs> you know, being gay, being Jewish. 
uh, devastating, if true, and he's certainly capable of it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think I've heard that story from not just uh, not just from Shout, not from Philip. So I think did one of the Peter Brown's book did it show up? Possibly. In that I, too? I I, I know that me. also in one of Pete Best's books. I think he was recalling the Decker auditions, and at some point Brian said something which John didn't like. And made some Jewish slur. And, of course, the Beatles, typically closing ranks, never said a thing. But it was like an awkward silence. Again, I think it's just the cheap shot. It's not excusing it, but I think that's where it was coming from. Lennon more than the others that seemed to have come up. Oh, yeah. I think uh, even as late as the 66 press conferences when the Jesus thing was being— the Beatles were being clubbed over the head with the Jesus thing at every press conference— uh, one of the provocateurs, <laughs> one of the people that were trying to pick a fight with Lennon at the L.A. press conference, which is pretty much the last public one, that one in Seattle, uh, kind of calls Lennon out on a, one of the magazine articles that in which Lennon said that show business was an extension of the Jewish religion. It was wow. actually the same article. It was the same interview, uh, but but that didn't get as much attention. Uh, the, it was, as you say, he was only asked about it the one time, and he he did refuse to comment. Um, you know, there's another thing about uh, the young Lennon. Uh, if you think back to Cynthia Lennon's first book, she talks about riding on the bus with him, for instance. Yeah, I was, was going to come to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know touching the couple of wisps of hair on a bald guy so that his scalp itches and you know it's just you know it's just the kind of thing he did he was he was a wise ass you know he also if you remember there were the stories of him around liverpool seeing veterans of the war crippled by the war and you know how did you lose your arms and legs grandpa jesus yeah. yeah i mean there's no two ways about it you know as fans we can laugh but it yeah it's hard to defend that in a public forum. Yeah, but knowing all we know about Lennon looking back in retrospect, I mean, you know, we, we it is really his insecurities and frailties that, that are showing. And, uh, you know, that doesn't necessarily excuse it. But, I mean, you do get to the point where enough time passes. I mean, if we're talking about Lennon in particular, not just political correctness, incorrectness in general, you know, you get to a point where there's this sense of empathy and you just go, okay, I, I kind of get it now because you look at the t- totality of who he was, how he was brought up, he, his insecurities, and by far he was definitely the most insecure Beatle. So, of course, these, these sort of things are going to come out. And also, let's remember what Ringo said in Anthology, which we'd known this before, but he confirmed it, that, you know, night after night, they would open up a show and the front row would be all disabled people. And right. while, you know, it sounds bad to put that down, one can understand from their perspective, it's like, wow, what's going on? Everyone trying to touch them, you know, as if they're the, the new messiahs. You know, people were sort of touching us as we walked past, that kind of thing. And wherever we went, we were supposed to be not sort of like normal, you know, whatever. We were supposed to put up with all sorts of shit from Lord Mayors and their wives and be touched and poured like Hard Day's Night only a million more times. Like at the uh, American Embassy, the British Embassy in in Washington here, or wherever it was with some bloody animal cut Ringo's hair, you know, in the middle of... I walked out of that, you know swearing on all of them and I just left in the middle of it. 
And uh, wherever we went on tour, like in Britain or wherever we went, there's always a few seats laid aside for cripples and people in wheelchairs like that. But it got to that because we were famous, we were supposed to have people, sort of epileptics and, you know, whatever they are, in our dressing room all the time, you know. We're supposed to be sort of good, you know. And, uh, and it's just... Was A, you wanted to be alone, and you don't know what to say, you know, I mean, because they usually say, i got your record, or they can't speak or something, and, and they just want to touch you, and it's always their mother or their nurse pushing them on you. They, they, they would just say hello and go away, but there's this sort of, like they push them at you like you're Christ or something, or as if you, there's some aura about you which will rub off on them, you know, and it just got to be like that. We got very sort of callous about it, you know. It was just dreadful, you know, I mean, you'd open up every night instead of seeing kids there, you'd just see a row full of cripples on the front, you know, all just sort of... It was just like that when we were running through, there'd be, people would be lining... It seemed like just surrounded by cripples and blind people all the time. And when we'd go through corridors, everybody would be, they'd be all touching us, you know, it got like that, it got horrifying. It was that sort of the in-joke that we were supposed to cure them, you know, is the kind of thing that Derek would say, because it's, it's a cruel thing to say. I mean, we felt sorry for them, like anybody would, you know, and it was awful, but there's a kind of embarrassment when you're surrounded by sort of blind, deaf and crippled people, and there's only so much we could say. The cripple impersonations, when do we last see them? Sort of 65? It does stop, doesn't it? Because before that, every time he's in front of the camera, in the studio, at the airport, whatever, he turns round and gives the look and it suddenly just stops and we never really see it again right you know i think on um the sullivan show he does uh he does it in in one of their early appearances and miami oh, miami yeah, he does. yeah and paul kind of looks a little uh yeah you know you could stop that already john you know he 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 kind of shrugs and... isn't that part of the shtick though alan because paul's also queuing him up he's saying you know clap your hands stamp your feet and he knows what's coming Yes, yes, that's yeah. true. It's true. <laughs> and it was part of the rhythm. And they did make one more reference to it. If you look in the Hello Goodbye video, there's a section where uh, I think Paul even starts it off where he, he does the beginnings of the, you know, it usually kind of started the spaz dance with a sort of sideways stamping mm -hmm. of a foot. And Paul and John kind of mirror each other in Hello Goodbye, sort of, I guess, saying hello and goodbye <laughs> to that old part of their uh, of their stage routine but it is it's, it's pretty amazing now looking back it's like a lot of these things right it's like in the 1990s seeing on bbc tv reruns of the black and white minstrel show from just 10 or 15 years earlier and being completely shocked at something that just took for granted before right. um you know and, and that's the thing that we we can't forget is in the times people weren't sitting in those audiences certainly not the masses of them, appalled by what Lennon was doing. That's the truth of it. Yeah. Well, speaking, speaking about the context of the times, um, this is a great opportunity for the segue, Richard, so I thank you for serving it up on a platter. I'm working on a, I'm working on a 3D presentation of the Beatles without getting too far into that. Um, it uses, employs something called Hyper 3D, which I'll explain on a later show. But it re involves me looking over and over and over again at certain events that were filmed from multiple angles. So I've been looking over one of the most filmed things of the Beatles that still all of the different film or a lot of film angles exist is the interview they did at Heathrow when they flew back from America in February of Which 64. appeared on Grandstand, the sports show. 
and it appeared every, I mean everybody yeah. filmed it <laughs> that's for sure there's about there's about six or seven different camera angles on that what's interesting in there is there's something that went on there that would be completely a dog whistle now and, and it blew past everybody as because of the context of the times they asked the Beatles about what was it like to meet Cassius Clay and they say oh yeah it was really you know he's great and Lennon breaks into actually the funniest part is when one of them says Liston and then all of a sudden Paul and John start going do you want to know a se- Liston do you want to know good. a secret they, they were making mm-hmm. up a new song cracking each other up but the part that was crucial there that everyone blew past and was no no problem then and would be a huge dog whistle now is Lennon starts doing an impression of Cassius Clay. I says to him, you know, he really goes and gives it the full Stanislavski. So uh, that today would be thoroughly unacceptable. But, but I know, is that, uh, you know, is that really a racist thing? If the guy was Irish, he would have been, you know, impersonating him as an Irishman or as a Scotsman or whatever. Well, in this time of double standards... Even the loop is probably closing on those. You can just about get away with that stuff now. You also have to know your audience. I think that's important with anybody when you walk into a room and you're telling somebody a joke and you kind of scan the scan the 10 people you're talking to and you realize that maybe somebody would be offended by this particular joke or whatever. That's a great point about knowing your audience. You see, I think Lennon could care less about his audience, right? And there's that story... Again, you know, maybe apocryphal, but again, I tend to believe it of them being in one of the hotels and all the kids screaming down on the street and Lennon sticking his head out the window and shouting, fuck off and buy some records. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, but I mean, that's the thing. It's not only a different time, but you've also got John Lennon there, who's always volatile, right? There are several stages in the Beatles career where he's sort of threatening their well-being if you like you know starting with the uh beating up bob wooler being their first national headline right which which by the way was an anti-gay incident do we know that um well yes i know lennon said that he felt that you know it was being inferred that he was gay and because of his own insecurity he lashed out i i thought maybe you were saying because of bob wooler's own well, well, I mean, I just know that I was, I think I might have mentioned it on the show before, I, I had the ability to sit down one day, or the opportunity, actually when you and I met that same week, uh, Richard, back in 1983, mm. and, and had a long conversation with Bob Wooler about that. He would not allow me to tape that one, unfortunately, but mm. he did tell me the whole story, and it was, uh, I mean, we, we all knew Bob was gay, and he was making a gay joke, which would have been acceptable i think within his community you know Mm. but Mm. he as he put it to me a lot of alcohol had been consumed and you know his guard was down or his judgment had been impaired i think that's how he said it yeah i mean the thing is to add insult to literally to the injury is that you know was it four years later being interviewed by hunter davis john isn't at all contrite he just says you know i battered his bloody ribs for him yeah (laughs) which doesn't exactly sound apologetic well, I, if you yeah. read the uh, if you read a copy of the apology telegram, you can tell it wasn't written by Lennon at all. It was oh, totally written Brian. by Epstein. Yeah. There's other places where Lennon, I think, unintentionally says what today would be unbelievable dog whistle stuff. Uh, if you've ever watched, uh, there was a fascinating overlap of events in 1969 where Lennon was the feature of Man of the Decade. Yeah. And also 24 hours. And the two specials on 
you know, one BBC, one ITV, yeah. were uh, filmed at the exact same time. There's a section in 24 Hours where Lenin is speaking to some Japanese public official. I was dying to ask you what it was like being married to an Oriental, because I'm also well, married to an Oriental. Oh, well, you must realize that That's you don't great. notice, you know, every now and then you suddenly think, oh, yes. But I can't wait to go to Japan and be a Negro, because you know, we're yeah. Negroes in Japan, aren't we? So I'm looking forward to being a Negro in Japan. <laughs> and he does, you can tell he doesn't mean it in a mean way. He's, he's trying to be funny. And that turned out to be the experience he had. Well, well, he, he meant, I think even Yoko might have, I, one or the two, it was either John or Yoko does say, oh, you know, in, in Japan, we're Negroes. You know, meaning, you know, gaijin, that's the word you hear. But once again, dog whistle a go-go, if he ever said something like that now. Uh, and that's the changing mores of time. But, you know? but right, at the same time, there he was in a relationship with a Japanese woman, and they were suffering overt racism at the hands of the British public, as you see by the press clippings in the wording album. Oh, it was brutal. It was bad over here, too. They People spoke horribly of Yoko. But remember, it would have only been 20 years before that that they were locking up American citizens of Japanese ancestry for nothing mm. in concentration camps. Right. Yeah. So, okay, so, you know, we're talking about the political incorrectness here early on. But then the flip side of the coin is that, you know, someone like Lenin was also outspoken on things like the Vietnam War, which, of course, there'll be some who may be right now on the wrong side of history with that one. But... Uh, the Beatles were certainly on the right side, and we know that Brian didn't want them to kind of meddle in that, but they got to a point by sort of 65 where both in press conferences and even on the Christmas record, right. they're making you know, anti-war statements. Oh, and it comes to Full Flower, obviously, in the 66 tour. Do any of you care to comment on any aspect of the war in Vietnam? <laughs> we don't like it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Snappy, you think I've we're... elaborated enough, you know. That's just don't like it, you know. It's you know, it's just war is wrong. Like well, it's obvious it's wrong, and that's all there is to be said about it. We can elaborate in England. <coughs> I mean, we could say a thing about like John's religious thing in England, and it wouldn't be taken up and misinterpreted quite as much as it tends to get here a bit. You know, I mean, you know it does, but, but it was to say it again and again. The uh, whip it up a bit. The thing is, I, I think, you know, you can say things like that in England and people will listen a bit more than they do in America because in America somebody will take it up and use it completely against you and uh, not have many scruples about doing that. And I don't know, you know, I'm probably putting my foot in it saying that, but... You'll be explaining for the next time. Yeah, talk. I know. <laughs> oh, well, it's just wonderful here. <laughs> wonderful. A rider in their contracts when they were touring the States was no segregated audiences. Right. And, of course, they ran into problems, was it in Jacksonville? Well, yes, I did uh, a little looking back on some of my notes from that period, and uh, it was definitely in the rider, and I can, I can send you guys a copy of the, of the rider, I have a copy of it, that uh, they would not play. Interestingly, the city of Jacksonville owned the Gator Bowl, and... They were the ones that instituted the policy of segregation at concerts. The, I think the concert promoters got blamed for a lot of it. There was three of them. I think they might have been brothers. 
But what had happened is right before the Beatles showed up in September, the uh, the Civil Rights Act went through. So that kind of put squashed the idea of segregated audiences anyway. I mean, it was not necessarily well enforced in the South. And as a matter of fact, when they were when they were planning the concert tour in like the spring, March, April, Montgomery, Alabama was on the short list of, of cities to play because they were going to be a segregated audience. Uh, the Beatles refused to, they, they didn't book that show. So that is an example where they turned down money um, for certain because they, they just, you know, that really was very important to them. It'd be a bit silly to segregate people because, you know, I mean, I, I don't think uh, colored people are any different. You know, they're just the same as anyone else. But, you know, over here, there are some people who think that there's animals or something, but I just think it's stupid, you know. You can't treat other human beings like animals. And uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind them sitting next to me. Great, you know, because that's the way we all feel. And a lot of people in England feel that way, you know, because there's never any segregation in concerts in England. And in fact, if there was, we probably wouldn't play them, you know. Because of weather problems, there was a Hurricane Dora going through Jacksonville at that time. The Beatles ended up flying, t- instead of to Jacksonville, They everything in northern Florida was off limits. So they flew to Key West. And... Uh, if you're familiar with a McCartney song called Here Today, there's a line where he talks about what about the night we cried because we couldn't keep it all inside. That refers back to the night they flew in unexpectedly into Key West and they sat up drinking all night and he and John got very emotional about going into their childhoods and stuff together. That's what he's referring to. Anyway, they were supposed to stay at an established hotel in Jacksonville and it was segregated. And uh, so that was uh, you know a place that they... they kind of skirted the issue where they gave a press conference at that hotel uh, you know even though they didn't stay there and uh, but but yeah once they found out that uh, Frogman Henry and the Exciters couldn't stay at the same hotel they were like no no we're not in, not gonna yeah, do it and, and that's the thing right we've been basically beating up on Lennon and maybe justifiably you know for the things that he did say and do um, within the context of those times but it's again, as I said, which is the real Lennon in terms of the heartfelt feelings? Is it the, the you know the cheap shots at people, whether it's their disabilities or their color or whatever, or is it the guy who comes out and says, you know, we've never played to segregated audiences before, and we're not going to start right now? Look at their heroes. Look at look at John's heroes. Look at Chuck Berry and Little Richard and right. And you know, and the bottom line is with with Lennon, he would go a long way for a joke. And you have to remember that you know we're, you're talking about the uh, the Christmas. Uh, I think it was the the third year that you're yeah. talking about flo- floating in the rivers and all that. Um, yeah. He also meant he also for a joke. He says there's an all white policy in this band in this group. Yes. Yes. So, you know, and he's doing it as a joke. I mean, look at look at who who they their heroes were. Look at who they toured with. Look at who they were just enamored with meeting and, and getting to hang around with just right. around that time. So, right. uh, you know, I, I just think that it's like, you know, we have to give Lennon a pass for a lot of this stuff we're talking about. What about the perceived these days? Again, I don't think it was back then particularly, but the perceived misogyny in some of the lyrics. Something to say that might cause you pain If I catch you talking to that boy again I'm gonna let you down And leave you flat Because I told you before Oh, you can't do that 
tell you one more time, I think it's a sin. I think I let you down. To make you toe the line You better run for your life if you can, little girl Hide your head in the sand, little girl Catch you with another man That's the end, little girl You better run for your life if you can, little girl Hide your head in the sand, little girl I'll catch you with another man That's the end, little girl With 
can't do that sort of uh, sets up sets the scene and the the mood for run for your life and i think lennon i think we you know we start to talk about uh it's getting better and some of these songs so we look at mccartney had a tendency of of um sort of putting himself out of body when he was writing these songs and look at it as a as a sort of a non-existent third person um but uh, w- with Lennon, I think these songs were a little bit more personal. So this definitely is a, a something to debate. Well, and or his thinly disguised. I know we're picking on Lennon all the time now. I mean, I didn't get into McCartney's racism, but we will in a few minutes. Uh, <laughs> you know, even <laughs> you know it exists, Alan. You more than most. Come on. <laughs> I mean, you know, Lennon gets. I'll be interested or- to hear. <laughs> Oh, do you remember a little bit? No Pakistanis, White oh, Power, Enoch Powell. Okay, but I, I took those as sarcastic. Absolutely. Those yeah. are sarcastic. You know, that was following Enoch Powell, Member of Parliament for Wolverhampton in the UK, a conservative MP, and he'd made his famous Rivers of Blood speech, you know, in which he was yes. predicting this dire future with, with immigration. Um and so it's on the back of that. It was a very hot topic. I remember that as a kid. And that was the era also of the skinheads with the bother boots, you know, going out, doing what they called packy bashing, you know, going out, beating up Pakistanis. So I totally agree with Alan. Anyone who jumps on, oh, listen, the Beatles are singing no Pakistanis. They were being completely sarcastic. That runs completely contrary to their views. Richard, the danger of doing it is I believe that some National Front sympathizer band actually did a cover of it. Yeah, but also that wasn't intended for commercial release. I suspect that they started it as a sarcastic thing and kind of realized that um, maybe if they put it out, it could be misinterpreted and so came up with an alternate set of lyrics that became the lyrics. But I, I, I think... The intention probably was to try and 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 make a, a political commentary song, um, and and the same with you know, it's basically the same sessions, the white power Enoch Powell thing, uh, you know, uh, as as the no Pakistanis thing. I think they were they were trying to go for finding a way to write a song that would, um, you know put down this attitude and and kind of realizing it was kind of dicey because they weren't really known as uh, as, as that kind of of group and you know putting out political songs and that kind of thing so i think they probably backed away from it i mean it's just a guess but when you see so many instances of it in the same month's worth of sessions you 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 get the sense that they're trying to go there you know, for a specific reason and thought better of it without think, Brian even being alive to tell him not to. Yeah. There's these instances, and we can go back to Baby, You're a Rich Man, what the alleged chorus was of that before it was thought better to change the lyrics. Baby, you're a rich fag Jew. Theoretically buried in the mix. Baby, you're a rich Their only official tribute to Brian. <laughs> oh, man. Other than his alleged book title, which basically you just said 20 yeah. minutes ago. 
Yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, I'm just putting it out there. I'm just saying that there is a subconscious mind and that I find it interesting. And McCartney's a great editor. He's a great editor of himself. Always was. We have to look at the journey here, right? The personal journeys. I mean, you know, in Lennon's case, we go from Run For Your Life in 1965 to Woman Is The Nigger Of The World in 1972. I mean, in the space of seven years, he's done a complete about turn. Now we've got to say, you know, I've heard people saying woman is the N word of the, you know, I mean, because which, we are no yeah. longer in today's world. We are, it, that is no longer a place we can go as white people. In yeah, but we, yeah, but we can't even quote a song title. No, we can't. That's ridiculous. Do you remember a word that sounds alarmingly like the N word, which means cheap or miserly? Niggardly. Alan gets the prize. Mm-hmm. QP doll for you. He well, would. you can't even use that word anymore. Well, I find it interesting because about a couple of years ago, I was watching Blazing Saddles on TBS or one of those, and they had managed to bleep the N word. And it's like, well, then why show the movie at all? Because yeah. it's it, it's that's the whole point of it. And and those those words, I mean, that that dialogue was written by um, Richard Pryor. I mean, he's the one that Mel Brooks brought in to, to really spice up the script. And and uh, so either either if you're going to show it, show it, um, but don't don't remove which is the main storyline, the main the main plot of the movie. Don't just gut it like that. It's like the old Tom and Jerry cartoons, right? With the Black Maid, they've been edited. Yeah. I ended up turning the movie off because it's just like, I don't need Blazing Saddles light. <laughs> I have a comment about Run For Your Life and You Can't Do That. Um, I don't see them necessarily as misogynist. I see them as both songs about jealousy and, you know, violent jealousy. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's not the best approach to dealing with jealousy, <laughs> but it's not particularly because they're women i mean you could you could see a gay man singing um you can't do that to his gay lover i mean it's not necessarily misogynistic and in terms of run for your life i mean the the line that is most quoted as you know being violently misogynist i'd rather see you dead little girl than to be with another man is lifted directly from baby let's play house yeah right but that's not not a defense in a sense. Do you know what I mean? It's like, especially with some of the people Elvis hung around with, they were, they were pretty <laughs> adept at, at proving that point. But, but I mean, yes, look, right. look how though the, it just shifted slightly for Jealous Guy on the Imagine album, right? Same theme, but presented in a different way. Right. right. 65, of course, controversy around the fact that they got the MBEs. And... Uh, at the time, there were people returning their medal, you know, war veterans. Why give it to a showbiz group? Of course, 50 years later, what a joke, because now it's all showbiz getting this stuff. Um, mm. But I remember Lennon at the time saying, you know, they got their medals for killing people in the war. We got ours for entertaining people. And it's a fair point. But of course, there was payback four years later when he returned the MBE, protesting okay. against Britain's involvement in the was it Biafra thing, the Nigeria Biafra thing, and cold turkey slipping down the charts? Yeah. <laughs> but that begs another question, actually. And, and Richard, you would be the best to address this. In today's world, as an entertainer, one must endorse 
one political side or the other here in America, you know, the vast majority of which leans to the left. What I find interesting is the distancing from all politicians that seemed to be a conscious effort by the Beatles. Uh, Harold Wilson, I think they saw right away, was was looking for a way to kind of latch on to the Beatles and and ride some popularity with them. And I don't, Lennon of seemed to be the one that took it personally. And, you know, he, you know, we all have our rights, Harold, you know, or, you know, uh, <laughs> or Ted Heath or whatever. There was, uh, he took particular exception with Ted Heath. And Yeah, I mean, the Beatles were never, go- you know, even though they're, political ideology was kind of clear they were never going to align themselves with a particular politician at that time you know they weren't people who were going to sign up to a party they wanted to be free to criticize all um, which i completely agree with and so yeah as you say nowadays you know people well even back then right sinatra 1960 was heavily involved with jfk's inauguration party um you know so that was always going on but yeah you know for these working class and middle class guys from the north of England, that would not have been a popular stance to kind of side with a particular party at all. That's why, you know, for a lot of them, even seeing them aligning themselves with royalty by going to Buckingham Palace and getting their medals was seen as a, a sellout. I think that's probably the most advanced thing of the Beatles, in a sense, uh, when it comes to this discussion today, is that they resisted the urge, even when people were throwing them the occasional bone such as, uh, you know, Harold, you know, Wilson. Um, Later in life, at the end of his life, Lennon made a very amazing uh, statement when when he was on the subject of being interviewed on the subject of politics. And he said that he never voted in his entire life. He never, including when he emigrated to America. Well, he he couldn't vote in America. Uh, once he got his green card. No, you have to be a citizen. You have to be a citizen. That's right. right. Well, not, <laughs> not in Massachusetts, but uh, yeah, uh, that would have been more than enough up here. Um, but, you know, you just got to fog up a mirror in Massachusetts. But anyway, uh, I f- did. do you guys find that a problem? I mean, now people would be, his fellow entertainers would be all over him. Take a stand, you know. Uh, how do you guys feel about this when Lenin very publicly said, you know, I don't vote, it only encourages them? It's definitely a problem. He's he's not putting his money where his mouth is. Yeah, it's, it's a fair point. I mean, certainly in this country, you know, in America, people died for the right to vote, okay, fighting for the right to vote. And uh, so my personal belief is that everyone should vote, even if there's an option for none of the above. But uh, I I agree that, yeah, he should put his money where his mouth is, at least, and at least vote. That's the least you can do, even if it's for the lesser of the evils, which it almost always is for me. It's kind of tough to know. I, I know there's anecdotes of, you know, on the Monday Night Football with, with Lennon, you know, buddying up and hanging out with Ronnie Reagan all night and Ronnie Reagan ex- de- describing the rules of football to him. But then... Uh, Obviously, he went to the Watergate hearings. He was, very, I mean, for a very good reason. He was anti-Nixon, and he was very pro-Carter. I know he went to Carter's inauguration. Uh, it's, I don't know if it's so simple to uh, to pigeonhole him and say, ah, he's just this, you know, politically. He's, you know, I think he had his set of beliefs and his set of what he thought was right. But it seems when I've thought about our show, 
there's some regimentation in here. I mean, the only guy I can think of who's come right out and said anything politically, uh, you know, is McCartney. You know, like in the election, you know, he's singing "Let It Be" in the early uh, in the early two thousands, and he slipped in "Let It Be, Kerry." <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, you know, stepping out of the 1960s, of course, more recently, Ringo was pro-Brexit, which was yeah. a, a bit of a shocker. Roger Daltrey was, it seems to be guys of that age, they sort of got, I hate to say this, they got kind of old. Well, not Macca. Oh, was he, was he anti-Brexit? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know, you know, I just never really took any notice. Good old <laughs> Macca. He seems to be the most outwardly, you know, starting with... Uh, Give Ireland back to the Irish, and well, I suppose did Lennon beat him with? Uh, no, one Ireland. Bloody Sunday. Was, uh, give Ireland back was first. Yeah, was yeah. was first. Yeah. Well, he was willing to. He he went to great lengths to get that out. So um, yeah, kind of interesting. Nineteen sixty six was the year that the worm turned. You know, regarding the Beatles in America. I mean, two controversies: the Butcher cover and the yeah. Beatles bigger than Christ. Both a lot of nothing, really. Um, even the Butcher cover, as distasteful as it was, I think that was a whole storm in a teacup. What, what's your view on that? I love the Butcher that? cover. <laughs> I do too. Well, you would. <laughs> yeah, and come on, Alice Cooper had a hit out of Dead Babies just a few years <laughs> later. <laughs> Exactly. Five years later, right? Wasn't yeah, but in, in all honesty, in 1966, if you'd have gone walking into the record store and there was the cover of the new album, do you think it's ridiculous for people to say that's a bit much? No, because once again, somebody has to be first up to do it. And that was the first, you know, within three or four years, you had, you know, Mom's Apple Pie and you had all these other kind of cool, th like... The Beatles unwittingly started this thing, like the coolest thing you could do if you were a band is to have an album cover art band. You know, and the Rolling Stones got banned. I mean, I don't think they were following the Beatles in a sense, but uh, what, Beggar's Bank would yeah. got banned, the original one. Um, so I think that became a cool thing. Typically, they were Johnny on the spot doing it first. I can see where that was jarring. I have some news reports at the time where, you know, all, every radio station was calling into t poor Tony Barrow and getting him to explain it. And, uh, you know, they the excuse they put out at the time was it was a pop art, a misguided attempt at pop art satire. They also used it to change the subject to something else. They asked him in a press conference about the Butcher cover, and I, I can't remember which one of them, either John or Paul, said it's as relevant as Vietnam, which it has nothing to do with necessarily, but it, yeah. it, it pushed the subject <laughs> into that. Well, you know, let's talk about something really controversial. Well, yeah. that, that's the great best way to deflect, right? <laughs> that's very political, actually. But I mean, do you think that they themselves were aware that this was really pushing things and just didn't care or were testing the waters or were truly innocent? Well, it was in used as an ad for Paperback Writer in Rain in England. Is, was there any reaction to it there? No, not that no. I know of. Yeah. Same with the Jesus. Oh, we're just much more broad-minded there, yeah. you see, much more accepting. We took the pictures in London at a, one of those photo sessions. By then, we were really sort of you know, beginning to hate it. A photo session was a big ordeal, and you, know, you had time to look normal, you know, and you didn't feel it. And uh, the photographer was a bit of a surrealist, you know, and 
he brought along all these babies and pieces of meat and doctor's coats, so we really got into it, and that's how we felt. You know, yeah. So we sort of, I especially, <laughs> pushed for it to be an album cover, you know, just to break the image, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it got out in America, and they printed, about 60,000 got out, and then there was some kind of fuss, as usual, and they were all sent back in or withdrawn, and they stuck that awful-looking <laughs> picture which you have in front of you of us sitting looking just as deadbeat but supposed to be happy-go-lucky foursome. I always saw it as, as a, um, a not-so-subtle message to Capitol Records. Stop butchering our albums. Yeah, but we didn't know that at the time, though. But they did. They did, and they made a point of it in the 65 interview in Los Angeles where they said, go talk to Mr. Capitol. You know, <laughs> you know, he gets, Lennon especially got very heated in that one. I think McCartney raises his voice a bit, too. He says, well, you know, we put time into sequencing these things, and then suddenly they come out and they're in the wrong order and they got this different artwork. One more album of butchery, and then things pretty much were on a consistent level from that point onward. I, I always thought that that was what the, was behind that, was you'd stop butchering our records capital. I've, I've actually never thought of that, but I must say it's a, it's a good thought. <laughs> I kind of doubt that that's what they were doing, but if they were, more power to them. We didn't necessarily, in other parts of the country, hear that interview. You know, we were just going to Kmart and buying the albums, where I think Lennon absolutely wasn't innocent and got a raw deal was the bigger than Christ controversy, let's call it, you know, in America, which was it, that just did nothing in the UK. And, you know, obviously here in the Bible Belt, especially all hell broke loose. And, and that was a really shameful episode that, you know, that is the kind of thing that unfortunately we could expect to see today again. Uh, but that was truly the storm of all storms in a teacup. And I, I don't see how anyone who took the side against Lennon in that came out. Well, just a few years ago, I was in Arkansas for some Beatles event and I had some guy coming up to me, heard my accent, started giving me a hard time over how John Lennon had said the Beatles were bigger than God. And it's <laughs> why attack me? <laughs> You um, should have said, "My, I am an Icelandic citizen, sir. I have no idea what you're speaking of. No, he meant Rod, because Rod Stewart had... That's right, it was bigger than Rod. God loved the Ruddles. That was beyond <laughs> genius. Beyond genius. But, you know, these, these, uh, these people, I mean, to, to almost paraphrase John Cleese when he was talking about um, the banning of, or the, or the controversy about life of Brian, um, and, he, and he said, these people have made me a very rich man. Um, you know, yeah. by burning all of those LPs and singles and all of that stuff, you know, I think I think they dramatically increased the value of my collection. Yeah, people were buying them just to burn <laughs> just them. Just to burn them, exactly. <laughs> now, where do you guys stand on the drug issue in terms of them being public about the drugs and, especially, you know, in song, in certain songs? I mean. As much as Lucy in the Sky of Diamonds, I do believe, was, you know, to do with Julian's friend in class and, and all that stuff. There's no doubt that if they'd never dropped acid, I think those lyrics and the feel of that song would have been different. Um, and we've got Tomorrow Never Knows and then we've got, you know, Day in the Life with, and various drug songs for sure. Where do you stand on that in terms of them being people who could influence young people? and people copying them, do you think that's a lot of nonsense or do you think that's valid? 
Well, they have to keep up with the times. I mean, look at all the different uh, drug songs, references they are, there were in songs mm. back then. So, I mean, that's that's when times were shifting and the Beatles were at the forefront of it. So, yeah, I mean, the fact that they happen to be um, idols beyond anybody else. Yeah, I mean, they're going to influence people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they should just shy away from the whole thing as, as songwriters and as artists. I, I actually, you know... For me, it's like ridiculous, it, um, you know, to sort of say that people are just going to be taking drugs because of the Beatles. Some people will, you know, some people went to see The Exorcist and committed a murder. Uh, but the fact is, I think it's fantastic. I think it's fantastic that they took us quite literally on their trips, you know, whatever it was that they were doing in life, especially John. You know, he brought us with him. And with those songs, something like Tomorrow Never Knows, we've discussed it on a previous show, the, the way of conveying the trip and stuff is quite ingenious. I, I love it. I think we get back into this principle of, of the moving target, today's mores, yesterday's mores. Um, yes, I think the Beatles weren't so much promoting drug use one way or the other. I think they're pretty subtle about that. They didn't come out and say, everybody smoke pot, everybody smoke pot, as people thought they were hearing at the end of I Am The Walrus, as opposed to everybody's got one, everybody's got one. Oompa, oompa, stick it up in oompa, 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 stick it up in oompa, I think they were subtle. It was their journey. Um, but how um, uh, how duplicitous of people to criticize them, at least in America, when you had a rich tradition of drug songs. You, I mean, what's the old rock, rockabilly song, uh, White Lightning? Uh, it's not very subtle. We all know what that is. Uh, there was a big hit in the country charts in the mid-60s by a guy named Dave Dudley, a song called Six Days on the Road. I'm taking little white pills and my eyes are open wide. You know, not you don't got to be Fellini to figure that one out, uh, you know, or, uh, or, or Timmy Leary. You know, he's dropping speed, you know. That was thoroughly acceptable. No problem. <laughs> you know, so I, but now... Any pro-pot songs or whatever I think would be very in vogue. You know, we have a a great legalization effort going on in this country, thank God. Massachusetts, thank you, being one of them. I don't don't use any of that stuff, but I thought it was ridiculous that Big Daddy's state is trying to protect us from ourselves. So— So once again, what was seen as probably incorrect at the time would be very correct now. And I think well, those, th- all those it was seen. It was seen as incorrect by the parents, right? I don't know if it was seen in, as incorrect by a lot of the kids. Oh hell no! They probably thought it was fabulous. But of course, the attitude was that the parents knew best. The kids don't know what they're talking about. Well, I can say right now, parents know best. Um. <laughs> I think it was subtle, though. I mean. You know, when I listened to Tomorrow Never Knows as a 12-year-old, I didn't think, wow, acid. I didn't know anything about that. It just was a... But if you, but if you were a 17-year-old? Who knows? Um, yeah, right. possibly. I mean, there, there got to be a sort of underground grapevine going on about what things actually meant and everything but it's not as if the songs came out and said you know everybody should take drugs 
just like that. I mean, it, 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 it was, it, it was subtle enough that you could ignore it if you didn't know it. Getting back to the parents. Yeah. I mean, they were too busy listening to songs about drinking <laughs> rum and Coca-Cola or watching uh, the Dean Martin show where Dean Martin was, um, or watching the Rat Pack, uh, constantly making jokes about drinking or, Laughing at Foster Brooks, the lovable drunk on many a TV show. So, you know, Frank they, Sinatra doing "I Get No Kick Out of Cocaine." Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I mean, if we get into the Rat Pack now, we're just looking at complete political incorrectness and you know misogyny. But that was acceptable. It, exactly. So it comes full circle with our conversation. You know, it's like it was acceptable for the times, and and I think that it was for perfectly fine for the Beatles to speak their mind. You know, the thing about the Beatles is you have to remember that they were being interviewed constantly. People were always shoving microphones in their faces and and asking them. You know, I mean, I always thought like McCartney handled it so well. It even today. I mean, getting asked the same twenty questions over and over and over again and trying to find a way to make it fresh. And you got to figure these guys they're in their mid-20s at this point getting asked the same questions time and time again and finally just being wanting to break free of that and just be able to say what they want to say about the war and about drugs and about what's going on in their life you know you got to give them a pass for being their age and it being the times and and the fact that they had to just be you know they had to answer those same questions over and over again and I'm sure it really bothered them to have to go through that. You know, when you think about it, Craig, you just triggered a memory in me in a sense. We've blown past one of their most politically incorrect at the time moves. When they showed up in, you know, crew cut Vitalis America in 1964, what was the topic of conversation? Not so much their music, but the hair. Right. And the idea, what could be more politically incorrect? Because I remember my parents talking about only drug addicts look like that. Well, there was another so. <laughs> politically incorrect reaction to it as well, which is they look like girls. Right. Ah, yes. there you yeah. go. Yeah. And some some uh, local musicians here in Boston took it to an extreme, the wonderful multi and the barbarians with <laughs> Are You a Boy or Are You a Girl? Which, uh, kids, if you're listening, go Google that one. This dude, when the Beatles were made, being made fun of for long hair, his hair was straight down to his rear end. He had the longest hair I've ever seen on a male at that time. And, uh, yeah, that was seen as the, the ultimate rebellion and the ultimate in-your-face to parents. They didn't care what your message was in the beginning. It, you know, within a few years, they adopted it and they softened towards it. But at the beginning, that's, it was so shocking to people, so incredibly shocking. Now, let's talk about something that I think was incredibly politically correct. All you need is love. The message, as Paul said, you know, our messages were always, you know, about love and, and good, positive things. And I, I think, you know, that anthem, you know, we've been going at Lennon here, but what a fantastic message. You know, they've got an opportunity to broadcast something to the world. And this is what they come up with, a straightforward message of, you know, unity at that time, which still resonates today. Right. And... That to me, you know, often the bad has more impact than the good in life. But I think that's one occasion where he bucks that trend. Yeah. When we were doing pre-show prep and Richard and I are talking, I was like, you know, my initial impression of All You Need Is Love is that it was a piss take. That it was Lenin kind of, uh, you know, sort of tongue in cheek 
making an observation of the summer of love that was happening. Uh, have you ever heard that, or do you? Is there any validity to I that? I don't know. I think the summer of love was really about to happen after that song came out. I mean, it started maybe around the time of, of, of Pepper, which was less than a month earlier. But I, I think it was meant straightforwardly, and it goes back to the word on Rubber Soul. It's basically the same message, but uh, uh, all you need is love is a bit spacier in terms of the verses, but, but the chorus is just straight out there. I, I, I think it was meant straightforwardly. I mean, also look at the, um, in the broadcast, you know, people carrying signs that have, have love in all sorts of different languages. I, I, I never heard of it as, as being a piss take. It's, I don't quite see it, but maybe if I think about it more, I can see what you mean. <laughs> Love is all you need. Love is all you need. 
I tend to see it a little bit more in the middle of what you guys were saying. I mean, it, to me, it's like Lennon was asked, they were asked to do this for our world. And in, I've always thought of that song as not necessarily like um, what we what you're saying, Richard. It's like John's version of a jingle in a sense that he, it just made sense to do that. Um, you know, this, this, the, the, the sing-along chorus and everything, it just feels like it's just really appropriate. And it's just John being a great songwriter and writing a great song that's going to fit for what the occasion was. I mean, obviously, like songs like The Word, you go back a little bit, and I think that that song probably has more um, more of what you're saying in, in a message as opposed to All You Need Is Love. Understood, but now I've got it. The word is good. Spread the word, and you'll be free. Spread the word, and be like me. Spread the word, I'm thinking of. Have you heard the word is love? It's so fine, it's sunshine. Said in the good and the bad books that I have read, say the word and you'll be free. Say the word and be like me. Say the word I'm thinking of. Have you heard the word is love? It's so fine, it's sunshine, it's the word. Now that I know what I feel must be right I'm here to show everybody the light Give the word a chance to say That the word is just the way It's the word I'm thinking of And the only word is love It's so fine, it's sunshine, it's the word
Then we go forward a couple of years and we've got the Beddins, that peace campaign, which, as John said, you know, if we're going to be the world's clowns, then so be it. But And at the time, I have to say, in England, certainly, and right through, oh God, mid-70s, you know, for stand-up comics, John and Yoko were right material. You could just throw those names in to get, you know, some giggles from the middle-aged or older audience. Uh, but I think it was absolutely a fantastic concept. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I I just love it. And the older I get, the more I love it, actually. I, th I think it was brilliant. Yeah, I think he, he said, you know, we're, we're going on our honeymoon. We're going to attract a lot of press coverage. Why not turn the press coverage to our message that we want to get out there? And then came up with Give Peace a Chance, which... You know, really, because it, it, it works exactly the same way as All You Need Is Love. Very catchy refrain and verse lyrics that, hard to tell what he's saying, <laughs> but the, mm -hmm. um, the refrain became, you know, at the time, I mean, all the peace marches and demonstrations, I mean... Give Peace a Chance was tailor-made for that and and was... The, the moratorium in Washington, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, and was put to really yeah. good use, um, you know. It, a bit like freedom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting discussion, maybe for the wrong side. No, um, I think to jump on what you're saying there, Richard, I the older I get and I look at not only the song but the bed-ins, and I am more and more in awe of of basically what he did and Yoko did at that time, which was, for one yeah. thing, they invented reality TV. I mean, yes. if there had been such a thing as, you know, CNN at the time, and missed it by 10 years, essentially, they, they, it just would have been on 24-7. It would have been, in, it, it was an amazing idea. Uh, right. Lennon, uh, I know, joked around that if he hadn't have been a Beatle, what would he have been? And, well, I was taking lettering in art school. Well, lettering is part of advertising. And I think Lennon would have been a fantastic advertising executive. I truly think oh, that. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, he was the great communicator, right? Which is what you need for advertising. But right. inventive. I'm, I'm not talking about just a guy with a good career. I'm talking about a mover and shaker, a guy that would have been an iconic one who would have, have invented new ways of advertising products. He knew I, how to connect with people and he knew how to captivate them. And, and just use the media in whatever media was available in the most masterful way. So I, I, that's something that, to me, gains in stature. Though I'm not entirely sure, was that uh, politically correct at the moment? Because of so many—I mean, he was one of the guys turning the tide, you know? So, I mean, now, of course, it's the most politically correct thing he ever did, but— uh, what we've got to remember, again, giving it context, is what it was coming on the back of, which is, you know, OK, we had the peace campaign in 68, which took the form of planting acorns for peace and stuff, which, of course, a lot of people just saw as ludicrous. But then let's throw into the mix Alan's favourite album, Two Virgins. Uh, and uh, <laughs> He just likes the disco remix of that. I mean, I yeah. got him to admit it. But, you know, that is what, precedes the beddings right so here they are in bed again as lennon said people expecting to seeing a, you know us screwing in bed and uh, th that's because really because of two virgins so that's the context right you've seen them naked on on the album cover and now they're in their pjs and what's going to happen Ooh. here yeah i think there's a there's a there's a thread going through there of of originality with the beatles there and and the acorn event i know people do blow past that one but there's a lot of events I see showing up 
on online nowadays where people are doing planting things for peace or planting things to repopulate the 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 you know reforest or whatever um and once again he was the first guy i you give me one you know outside of smoky the bear show me one person who was like you know pro forest uh, in 1968 uh, another thing that the beatles did that i think was incredibly politically correct at the time was to contribute uh to the world wildlife fund album <laughs> Right. Um, you know, which in that case was across the universe, um, you know, the different version of it or whatever. I mean, who was doing that? You know, I mean, you know, it just kind of we don't really think about it much because it's so commonplace now. But I don't remember. You know, I don't remember Elvis Presley coming out. Uh, he did great charity things. I know he did things for children's hospital. You know, he did things for St. Jude's Hospital and stuff like right. that. Yeah. But I don't remember a celebrity really stepping out there and saying hey, we're doing this for the environment. I mean, right. we were still two years away from Earth Day yeah. in 1968. No one talks much about it, but I think that's one of the more politically correct things they did that I think everybody, even the most cynical parent, would have sat there and said, well, I guess we can't really be against saving panda bears, you know? Mm -hmm. Across the universe, Jack Ruby. 
we were talking before about the sort of homophobia in terms of the Bob Willer beating and baby you're a rich man. But again, we've blown past, to use your phrase, the fact that they had a gay manager. Right. And, you know, that's something that you brought up, Craig, beforehand, that, you know, uh, homosexuality was illegal in Britain until 1967, the year that right. Brian died. Um, and yet all the it, managers, the Kinks manager, the Who's manager, the Beatles manager, you know, what was the song? Yeah. And and it was well known around Liverpool that their manager was gay. OK, uh, I remember, again, Keith Hartley telling me that when he was in Hamburg with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, Freddie Starr um, of Freddie Starr and the Midnighters, who would go on to have a career as a stand-up comedian in Britain, he said he remember him doing Beautiful Dreamer and saying, and now Brian Epstein, and he just stuck his butt out through the curtains and walked on stage backwards. Well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so people could be really brutal back then, and yeah. these guys had... As I said, a gay manager, it was what, you know, he may not have been out with it back then, given the climate of the times, but still, you've got to admire them for that. They had a Jewish gay manager. So, yeah, this whole thing about queer Jew. But yeah. the reality is they invested everything in him and he invested in them. Right. It's interesting to me, though, seriously, Richard, that, uh, like I say, the Who's manager, you know, and the Kinks manager, there seem to be a lot of gay managers uh, yeah. for rock and roll bands. So maybe... Was that just because they saw this guy as they looked past it or as so much as embraced it, uh, you know, because that was what you were going to get in in rock and roll management that was dynamic and young, you know. So, yeah, that may well be the case. Yeah. But still, if they were really bigoted, right, yeah. they would have said there's no way we want this guy managing I, us. I just think it was a non-issue for them. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. It was, you know, and the thing is, as we're just talking about Lennon so much here, and we're going, we're sort of, sort of uh, encapsulating his life here. And, you know, the one thing that everything that you guys are saying that that we're saying that Lennon has in common is the bottom line is, is he just wanted to shock. He just wanted to shock people, and some of the stuff we know is politically incorrect, and some of the stuff is has nothing to do with politics. It's just he just had an obsessive, impulsive need to just want to shock people, oftentimes, and so it really comes down to that in a lot of a lot of instances. So, who amongst us has got an erotic lithograph? <laughs> About uh, what? You know, the, the John Lennon ones. I don't mean any. Oh, 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 thank you. All right. Oh, well, of course, yes, yeah, silly question. Oh, man, you I'm drawing one as we talk. I was like, don't tell me those guys. <laughs> but no, I mean, okay, you know, I was joking there, but I mean, the erotic lithos, again, I mean, talk about, for want of a better word, ballsy. Yeah. What a thing to do back then. I mean, they really are graphic. I don't yeah. remember the ballsy part. I do remember. Never mind. <laughs> It's art, you know. It's it's art. John John was an artist. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. what what a thing to do, though, right? You know, I mean, George had already said to him regarding the Two Virgins cover, "When you show your cock, it's like we're all showing our cocks." Mm -hmm. And here he's at it again, but of course, it's much more specific, John and Yoko. But yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. It is art. I mean. But what about from the group dynamic, the fact that he's doing it? Is it politically incorrect for the group? The group wasn't thrilled about it, I don't think. I mean, you listen to Ringo on the anthology, and he says, you know, is, yeah, he, I, I, I said, uh, I see you've uh, even got the times there as if his dick wasn't out. 
you know and so you know and then he says oh come on john you know that we get we have to field all the questions every time you do something like this so yeah Yeah. and i think that's the that's really the point it's not so much whether they thought like the lithographs or the two virgins cover was politically incorrect or not the bottom line is is each one of those beetles got shit for what the other one did accidentally and it's just like in you know they got enough attention they got enough um negative things that they had to had to always deal with it's it's one more thing it's it's like i think in in the only way i can see it being a problem is it's unfair to the other beetles in that sense that they all had to um suffer the consequences from what John did or whatever, but, you know, Paul making a comment about, you know, the drug use or whatever. Well, it's, it's, there's another dimension to the political incorrectness at the time, which would be politically correct now, which is who is he taking this naked picture with, which is an Asian woman. Yeah. At that time, once again, that's just, you know, bad enough. 23 years after the war. Uh, Yeah, bad enough. You know, there was still, you know, I I remember when uh, Hirohito died that uh, there was a big con- controversy about who was going to go from England to the funeral because they were still carrying uh, very understandable wounds at, from what the Japanese soldiers had done to the British soldiers during the war. So you can imagine a couple, 20 years after, and here's this privileged, long-haired, you know, didn't have to go into conscripted service, ungrateful rock and roller, and he's flaunting his Japanese girlfriend in front of you. So uh, I I think that that had a dimension to it as well. But there's there's obviously no doubt that with Two Virgin, you know, given all the acid that John had dropped and and doing heroin and all that, he was still rooted in enough reality to know what he was doing here. And this was pure shock value, right? So this is willing political incorrectness. I mean, there's no mistake here. Well, he was not shy about doing that on another of his other unfinished music album as well, as I think one of the most politically incorrect things that he did was uh, there's a track called Baby's Heartbeat. Right. uh, Which is, I mean, just the height of distaste. And I I know that he was contracted to do a flexi disc for some magazine. can't remember off the top of my head what the magazine was. Um, Oh, was that it? And and he he submitted that. (laughs) You know, come on. Really? Well, hold on. You're forgetting, though, that in the 1970 Rolling Stone interview, he told Jan Wenner that he and Yoko were both incredibly shy people. <laughs> Craig was just saying we're centering so much of this on Lenin, and I can assure the audience this is all happening naturally. Um, I think Lenin was such a powerful force, he overshadowed some of the times McCartney would say something you know, controversial in the very same dateline magazine that Lenin, you know, got roasted over the uh, Jesus um, incident. You know, there's a whole thing in there with McCartney saying, ah, America's so prejudiced and everybody's just a lousy N-word if you're not white. And, and it's like, had it, had the Lenin stuff not been in that issue, I'm sure he would, McCartney would have been basted like a turkey from one side of this country to the other mm-hmm. with that statement. But the Lenin thing was so much juicier because, oh, but this is even better than racism. This is, uh, they're anti-religious. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's a line you can't cross back then. Right. Uh, During the Beatles years, I mean, as I said, we've been talking about really Lennon when it comes to political incorrectness with a bit of McCartney thrown in, but still nothing on the scale of John. Do we have any examples of George or Ringo political incorrectness during those years? Yes. Taxman. 
But that, what's incorrect about that? Well, what's incorrect about that is he's he's uh, theoretically the beneficiary of a of a socialist welfare state. You know, he's got his national health. I mean, you know, sure, he's a millionaire. He probably didn't need it at that point. But uh, it is a very truthful and revealing statement about George, which carried to the end of his days, which is uh, he did not want to put his money. He might he might have believed in, in those principles, but he didn't want to pay for them. Well, I don't know if that's fair, because, again, the context is that under a Labour government, I think it was a bit later on, but the taxes, I mean, you talk about in America, they say about, oh, you know, socialism, Obama, got no clue. I mean, under the Labour government, it would end up with 83% tax at the top end, with another 15% on the interest. So in terms of touring, at, some, at one point in the 70s, a lot of artists said they would lose money touring in the end because there were some things they couldn't claim as expenses. Right. Um, and, and so it got ridiculous. And, and that was really what George was fighting there was for as much as they would have voted for the Labour government, they were getting really crippled. I mean, you know, people here are complaining about 33 percent tax or something. Eighty three. Yeah. Well, that's uh, but my my point is, is that flies and th this this is one of my issues with a lot of left leaning people that I know and a fair amount of them are, you know, sign carrying, you know, very, very left wing, very, very progressive. And yet I notice where do they all end up uh, living behind a, a, a gated walled community in Florida where there's no income tax. So I like I say, I find this to be politically incorrect because, you know, it's great to spouse about how, you know, everything should be free. But if you don't if you're not willing to go there and, and hand Big Daddy government everything yeah, that you but own, again, but again, it's on the scale that he's talking about. I, right? uh, it's like being a little pregnant. Uh, yeah. For me, Richard, I, I think you're either in or you're not. And if you're in, then you have to surrender to a, a you know, this, the Swedes are like this as well. I mean, I remember, you know, the oppressive amount of taxes. We, you know, it forced Swedish people of, of, of certain means to be slightly dishonest and hide money places here or there and right. take that gamble. Alan and Craig, what are your views on tax man? Do you think that's politically incorrect? I don't think so. I don't think so either. You know, yeah. he's talk he's he's being very specific. I mean, I see what Eric is saying about him not being willing to, you know, pay into a socialist system that's redistributing the wealth and he had the wealth, but is he's talking he's singing specifically in the song about what he's saying is a ninety five percent tax bracket. You know, five percent appears too small. Be thankful I don't take yeah. it all. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and you can kind you can kind of sympathize with that a bit. I mean, even though they're millionaires, um and we don't really know how much they eventually got i mean there was a lot of waste there was all kinds of other you know stuff you can go into if you want to do an economic study of the beatles but uh but he felt he yeah. was uh, you know <laughs> sort of being taken that too much was being taken away and well, i think he i think he was yeah. i i i guess my point is is that i don't think that that sentiment didn't go away right I think that right. followed him for the, the end of his days that, you know, it would be, a case would be made to him years later and he would still, well, they're not getting any of mine. You know, yeah. it's like. Uh, yeah, but it, uh, but that ran with yeah. George on, on a few things, right? That people were making money off them, whether it's fans or, you know, whoever, the record companies, he, you know, there was a resentment for anyone making money off them as he saw it. Well, instead of bashing George on this next one, I will say the other thing where George probably doesn't get enough credit was, uh, I think George did something amazingly politically correct in by warmly 
embracing, respectfully embracing, the Indian subcontinent and everything about it, its people, its religion, its food, yoga, its music, uh, opening up, it, it seems, uh, you know, for people here, in, at least of my age, I didn't really know much about, I didn't think much about India because we didn't have a, a, an Indian population of any size that you would notice. We didn't have Indian restaurants when I was a kid, for example. So you didn't really know much about this. And then there's this, George is on, you know, as kids would see this, or as in the movies where they would kind of have a, a sort of type of reference to, to uh, you know, South Asian um, culture. And it was magic. It was like, wow, what's he on about? And, you know, what is... So that seemed really beautiful and very, uh, um, I think, kind of unusual. I can't think of other celebrities that were, like, opening up parts of the world and say, hey, you, you, you're really missing something here. You're missing these great people, this great food, the, this great music, this, you know, all of this culture, these, this amazing country uh, that, you, you know, that he wasn't born to. In other words, he's not, you know, even Pete Best could have done it and said, well, you know, his roots are in India, you know, his mom was born there or whatever. Um, so George just adopted this place spiritually and, uh, uh, and brought it to all of us. You know, I, every, once, every time I do yoga, uh, I think of George because I go, the first time I ever heard yoga was out of his mouth, and I thought he was talking about the stuff that came in a little custard cup. Piggies is political, too. Have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt? Getting worse, always having dirt to play around in. Have you seen the bigger piggies in the starched white sheds? You will find the bigger piggies stirring up the dirt. Always have clean sheds to play around in. There's a lot of politics on the White Album, and it's not always what you would expect. Um, I think, you know, Revolution is is a, a really interesting case, because when the single came out, you know, it had the 
loud electric guitar intro distorted, and you get the impression that it's going to be a song advocating revolution, which was in the air in spring of 1968. And, you know, everybody on the left was calling for that one way or another, um, especially in Europe, some d- to some degree here too. Um, but what John is saying is, well, not so fast. And he was taken to task by a lot of sort of hard left um, people, including like a Red Mole went and did an interview with him and, and, and yeah. basically said, this is a really reactionary song. We're kind of surprised. Yeah, Tariq Ali. Mm-hmm. Mm. And and then, of course, let's not forget, you mentioned the White Album, Alan, Blackbird. <laughs> yeah, I think at the time that was really about a bird. <laughs> oh, you don't think it was about Diana Ross? <laughs> well, you know, we have that recording um, of Paul Donovan and Mary Hopkin um, during the postcard sessions, and Paul plays it, and he jokes about, you know, that Diana Ross was offended and he said, I really didn't mean it that way. Um, I've had emails from people when I've mentioned this who said, no, he says I did mean it that way. But I, We had that discussion on the show, remember? We're, we, I hear didn't as well. Yeah, yeah, I have a pretty good yeah. tape of that, <laughs> Eric. <laughs> Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly all your life You were only waiting For this moment to arise Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes And learn to see All your life You were only waiting for this moment to be free Blackbird fly Blackbird fly Into the light of the dark black Also in the White Album, before we forget, once again, a little bit of this environmentalism. You know, there's there's some digs at, uh, you know, Bungalow Bill, What Did You Kill? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think is wonderfully politically correct. But I'm yeah. trying yeah. to think of what else shows up that's politically in or out. I need a fix because I'm going down, down to the bits that I left uptown. I need a fix cause I'm gone down Mother Superior jumped the gun 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 Mother Superior jumped the gun
I can think of one thing we haven't covered that Richard, you and I have talked about in length. Um, you know, according to like Ultimate Classic Rock magazine and a few other things, like they would consider, um, I saw her standing there to be politically incorrect. And, well, because uh, she was only 17. Yeah, yeah. They actually, they consider that to be, I'm just looking at the website right now, they consider just that to be uh, rock's most politically incorrect songs. <sighs> and they include wow. that. I, I certainly hope Young Girl uh, by Gary Puckett and the Union Gap is a few slats above it. Well, they have Sweet Little 16 and uh, Johnny Burnett, Year 16, which Ringo obviously covered uh, years oh, later. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was something as well. Someone pointed out to me recently, like, you know, Ringo, there he was in his 30s talking about, you know, you're 16. It's disgusting. Right. I mean, it's like, come on. But you see, that's yeah. the changing. There was a lot of that around and you can get into okay the misogyny um you know obviously there were groupies around but at least in two instances i can think of where uh it could be a little dodgy for the age group of the girls the beatles were dealing with and one is in australia and and one is in minneapolis in 65. they moved in and out of the motel they uh seemed to mingle with quite a number of young girls who were on the sidewalk these were for the most part primarily minneapolis girls uh, at midnight, we called the curfew. We told the kids that uh, they were in violation of it, those under 18 years of age, and they would have to move on. It came to our attention at that time from a couple of the girls on the sidewalk that they had friends who they were waiting for that were within the motel. We then felt, of course, that the only place they would be is on the fifth floor of the motel where the Beatles were housed. We went to the fifth floor and... Uh, we completely shook down the fifth floor, doing this with the aid of pass keys, knocking on doors, and uh, telling people that uh, the curfew was now uh, enforced and that they would have to have guests leave the hotel. What was their reaction to this enforcement? Some of the members of the troop, Phil, became very indignant. They told us that Minneapolis was a very narrow-minded town, as were its police officials, and that other cities had been very tolerant uh, to the parties that they had held in their rooms. One of their uh, group with a British accent uh, told me that they would never come back to Minneapolis, and I remarked to him that if they did not come, it would be too soon for me. We had no trouble with three of the Beatles because they had, upon returning from the show at Met Stadium, had gone to the hotel, had had a lunch, and had gone right to bed. We did have trouble, however, with uh, the report of a girl in one of their rooms, that of Paul McCartney. We did, however, get the manager of the Beatle Troop to uh, announce himself uh, <clears throat> at Mr. McCartney's room and tell him that the girl would have to leave the room or we would have to force entry into the room. Uh, we told all members of the troop who were causing us a problem that they were in violation of a city ordinance, that of false hotel registration, where only the person registered in the room may reside there. We felt, Phil, very frankly, that this is a typical traveling troupe, much like you have with a circus, and that they are here today and they are gone tomorrow. We are accountable, of course, to all the citizens of Minneapolis, and we feel for the welfare and safety of their kids, even though they may be a little hysterical and they may go a little overboard for this type of thing. We know where our responsibility lies. The Australian uh, 50th anniversary TV show uh, that they did, which if you can find it online, folks, 
it's worth every second. <laughs> they That's fantastic. Yeah. They track down some of the participants, <laughs> still very attractive women. <laughs> and they, they, uh, uh, Jenny, Jenny Key, uh, for example, uh, uh, who's a very talented designer, fashion designer, eventually moved to London. I believe she was only 17 when she uh, had her affair with Lennon. So, yes, today, unthinkable. Today, a lawsuit. Today, me too. Well, th that's the thing, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, with the Beatles, today, would there have been a lot of me too against them? You know, George and, and John and Paul, how they came on to women, you know, how they dealt with women. I mean, now how people are getting outed, had they been outed in the same way, who knows what would have been yes. uncovered? Right. Yes, yeah, I think it, 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 with any of these rock and roll bands, it couldn't have been very good. Well, I mean, there's, you know, George in one of the interviews on camera where he says, how, you know, he'd learnt the technique on the way into a venue, spotting a girl and grabbing her on the way in. And basically, you know, they'd shag her in, in the dressing room or in, in the closet or whatever. Now, there's kind of like this natural assumption that the girl was only too happy to go along with this. We don't know. We don't know. No. And maybe that's the, uh, yeah. The, and maybe that's the greatest politically incorrect point of the entire thing you know in today's uh where where we are right now looking back that's i can't think of anything more politically incorrect that they would have done now we haven't you know i asked before about george and ringo okay we found some stuff about george and about paul ringo there's really nothing is there that we've discussed so far that, apart from him as part of the group but individually nothing either correct or incorrect the drinking, maybe. The drinking, and also, I have noticed one thing. Like I say, I go over and over and over these old interviews and things on film. And something was said to me by a guy that uh, he was very new on the job in Boston in the early 60s. And he had to cover the Beatles coming to Boston in 64. And he still hates Ringo. <laughs> he just, he thought Ringo was the worst. And he just, well, I, I won't even repeat but yeah but are we talking personality or political yes, incorrectness yes but but what i'm saying though is at that time to be so overtly uh uh what's the word i'm looking for impolite to press um i think was was an incorrect move at that time that you were supposed to shut up be nice help these reporters who are helping promote your career and don't wise off and don't give them a hard time and don't give them a nasty flip answer. You know, Lennon would give a flip answer and everybody laughed. Not so much with Ringo. I mean, on some of them, yeah, you know, I love Beethoven's poems. But there's other ones where he's shaking his fist at the camera or, or that's it, okay? That's enough. You know, he would, he would sometimes be very gruff and you could sense an atmosphere change. And I don't think that was politically correct at the time. Does the Beatles, you know, well-documented treatment of their own female partners back in the 60s, does that fall into political correctness or incorrectness, or is that a whole different subject? I think it absolutely falls in because, you know, you are not allowed... Domestic abuse is no longer tolerated in any mm. profession, you know? No, well, no, not just that, though, but what about just the unfaithfulness? Is that p politically incorrect? Is that something that we would classify as such? Yes, we would, yeah. Would we? I think hmm. so. I don't, I, don't think it's, I, I don't think it's seen as wonderful, roguish behavior anymore, is it? I think. I'm, not, I'm not talking about approving it, but I just don't know if that's something that comes under that particular label. 
Yeah, I don't think it comes comes under that label either, Richard. Right. Yeah. Why not though? Why wouldn't it be? Well, because not everything that's necessarily taboo or not good isn't politically incorrect. I think that right. you have to, if we're looking at the definition of uh, political incorrectness, we're talking about saying or and or saying something or doing something that offends a particular group. That um, and I don't necessarily think that this uh, this necessarily applies to that. I think that I think if if you even any supermarket when you're waiting in line um, and all those wonderful magazines that are there to to uh, kill the time for you, um, I think that there's such a they mention that so many times. It's a good way to you know this guy or this woman was in you know uh, unfaithful. You, I don't think you would have seen that as much then. And I could be wrong, but I think that was almost like, oh, that's like men are like type of, you know, it was kind of allowed. In that sense, I think you're right. Um, because if we look at a show like Mad Men and uh, we see how the um, how they just were with women in general in the office. And, yeah. um, you know, in that sense, now that's politi- politically incorrect, but the act of infidelity per se, I don't know whether that's necessarily political incorrectness but yeah i totally agree i don't think there were the repercussions in place in that time so look at say when john divorced cynthia you know today cynthia would have cleaned him out right you know and that's i mean but then it was kind of like the man was still you know whatever whatever he threw at her i'm sure it wasn't very much uh, that his lawyers you know she was she was not empowered the way someone would now. So I think they work in concert. That's just my opinion, but I think it's my what, what about Yoko's behavior to the, toward the other woman, this big feminist, and, and the way she was towards Cynthia? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. That, that to me, is politically incorrect. Um, yeah, or is it in other just words, being gotta... cruel? Is it just <laughs> being cruel or insensitive? Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, once again, it's it's a whole different thing. I mean, political incorrectness. I mean, we look at, you know, I was to do a little research on this um, last night. I was just looking and thinking about what things were like in the 60s. And, you know, people don't realize that, like, in the 60s, women couldn't even get their own credit cards. An unmarried woman couldn't get a credit card, you know, unless she was married and the husband was required to co-sign. I mean, that's that's unthinkable nowadays but didn't really change until 1974 and like like for another example women in in general were not allowed to serve on a jury back then uh it was it varied by state by state but they were considered to be like the center of the home and the primary responsibility is caregivers but they were also thought to be like too fragile to hear grisly details of crimes and too sympathetic um to remain objective so you know these things are just we have to you know they're they're horrible to think about now, and they're just unconscionable. But but in light of the the '60s, so it, it once again we're 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 comparing things through a different lens now. Well, what about the smoking? You know, cigarettes. Oh, oh that yeah, was, which was perfectly acceptable then. Perfect. Yeah, right. Yeah. We've got them because they didn't hide the fact back then, which was a, a little edgy in '63 and '64 that you know they like to have scotch and coke and smoke their lark cigarettes, but. Isn't it amazing that the Deso Hoffman shop from 63, which was on the cover of I Want to Hold Your Hand in 64 in the States, that for the 20th anniversary reissue, they airbrushed out the cigarette in Paul's right hand, which looks utterly ridiculous because now it just, why is he holding his hand that way? 
They should have had a right. contest for what to for to, what to insert in Photoshop. You could have like, well, we can't have a cigarette. We could have something else. They should have had a big contest for that. Yeah. <laughs> what would it have been? A quill pen? I'm, there's our contest. <laughs> <laughs> what would you? All right, kids. And then we've got the Abbey Road cover, right? The Ian McMillan shot that when it was issued as a poster in the States, they'd airbrushed out the cigarette in Paul's hand again. Beautiful. Uh, you know, it just reminds me of how when you look back at things now, uh, do yourselves a favor sometimes uh, and go look back on the Mike Douglas show from 72 when John and Yoko were co-hosts. They do a cooking segment, you know, to show how healthy they are with their macrobiotic right. diet. And every there is a cloud of cigarette smoke hanging over all of them. Everybody's got a butt going. Oh, well, you know, I, I went see The Day the Earth Stood Still a few years ago. It was like screened in one of the downtown parks in Chicago in the right. summer. And the audience were just killing themselves laughing when there was a scene with two doctors discussing something and they're both puffing away. He was the original Marlboro man. Yeah. But, but, you know, a lot of the TV shows were, were sponsored, like uh, I Love Lucy was sponsored, you know, by Philip Morris. And so it, it was, they, and a lot of radio Jack shows. Jack Benny as well. show as well. Yeah, yeah, Jack Lucky Strike. And, and yeah. they were actually, it was the Lucky Strike show starring Jack Benny. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. and in fact, if you buy the Ed Sullivan show DVDs, all of the Kent commercials are deleted. Ah. Oh, now they are now. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. With the Micronite filter. The yes, micronite Kent filter. Which killed my aunt and uncle. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah, my aunt and uncle were loyal Kent smokers and it killed them both. Your taste buds will tell you why you'll feel better about smoking with a taste of Kent. With Kent, your taste buds grow clear and alive because... Kent with the Micronite filter refines away harsh flavor, refines away hot taste. It makes the taste of a cigarette mild. Mild and kind. Kent is kind tasting to your taste buds, kind tasting to your throat. So there's nothing to disturb your full enjoyment of the goodness of Kent's finest quality tobaccos. So get your taste buds back to normal. Smoke a carton of Kent without switching. Then when your taste buds have become clear and alive, try your old brand and see for yourself how much you prefer the mild, kind taste of Kent. Remember, your taste buds will tell you why. You'll feel better about smoking with a taste of Kent with the Micronite filter. Isn't that what John and George are referring to on the train to Washington, the Micronite filter? Yes. yes. Yeah, they're talking yeah. about Kent's. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I think the commercial, the jingle comes on when they're in the limo in the U.S. visit, uh, when they're, they're, they're listening in the little transistor radio. <laughs> yes, you're right. That it, it, it does Kent's, come on there. Kent satisfies best. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I think on a positive sense, uh, the one thing I had a note for, you know, with the whole peace movement that um, Lenin continued on beyond the bed-ins when he agreed to do the peace festival in September of 69 and meeting up with uh, Pierre Trudeau, I thought was very politically correct in yeah. the most uh, vivid of, of ways. The idea that a beetle actually met a sitting head of state, you know, of a major country um, to discuss peace. Uh, yeah. Once again, what gets more politically correct than that? Um, towards the end of the 60s, uh, Lenin was very supportive of a guy named James Hanratty. Yes. Who was one of the last men ever he, executed. He, he, was, he was the last man to hang in Britain, to be yeah. executed. And he was very convinced of his uh, – he had been railroaded by the government or, or whatever. And uh, 
now where does that one fall, do you guys think? I mean, by the way, Lennon could never have known this, but the body was exhumed, you know, decades later, and through DNA testing, they found out that he absolutely was guilty. But right, yeah, but at the time, I can tell you, all the way through the 60s, 70s, 80s, when I was in the UK, it was always perceived as a total injustice that this man had been executed. We thought he was just like a petty criminal, but that he'd certainly never commit, committed rape or murder. Yeah. Um, he, he'd gone, you know, to his death denying it to his father, and his father had always campaigned. So there was a lot of sympathy for the family. And so at the time, you know, apart from the victims, obviously, again, who well knew who did it, uh, or, well, one well, of them, the, the only one, survivor, only one yeah. of them survived. But um, yeah, at the time, it was seen as totally politically correct as, you know, a good thing to do. And today, I think he would get a pass in that, you know, we didn't have DNA testing and he just would have said, hey, well, yeah. you know, I got fooled. You know, oh, so absolutely. Not, yeah. yeah. In a Spaniard in the works, there is a, a poem, Our Dad. Oh, yeah. One verse. Well, here's a blessing in disguise. Not only money, too. He's left his pension book as well, the slimy little Jew. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. oh yeah. Oh, that's oh, yeah. rough. Would you be insulted if it wasn't John Lennon writing that? Were you insulted by John Lennon writing that? I don't know that I was insulted because I grew up at a time where people said these things, you know. Um, I think, in you know, again, in John's case, it, it just was the desire to shock. I mean, he uses the word Jew in a number of poems in in his own right, but it usually is just because it rhymes with something. I mean, it doesn't even make particular sense. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think Britain is a little tone deaf on the Jewish thing. I mean, just ask Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> <laughs> And at the same time, um, there was the story about, and, and, and I've heard Paul talk about this in interviews, actually, and he doesn't see what the issue was. But at the time, they were considering whether to hire Brian as their manager. Um, Paul said that his father said, now, son, you just get a good Jewish manager. That's what you should do. And... Paul has, uh, I've heard an interview where he's saying, you know, people were upset about that, but I don't, I don't really see what the issue is. And I guess the issue is that he's sort of being reduced to a cultural stereotype, you know, Jewish manager, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you'll make some money. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, Yeah, but but a stereotype in a positive way, though, that's how Paul's always tried to. Yes, it is. But how different is that as for what I used to hear from my extremely prejudiced parents, um, you know, that uh, African-Americans were, you know, happy people. Or they run fast or they're really good sports figures. Jim McCartney could have said to his son, you know, well, you want to be careful with the Jewish manager. He could rob you. But that isn't what he said. That's true. Okay. You know, so it could have been the negative stereotype. Yeah, but it's still a stereotype. I guess that's the point. Is yeah, that, it is still you know, a stereotype, and so I mean, that's the bottom line of political correctness. You basically you're calling somebody out on something because of you know their ethnicity right. or their skin color, which is, you know, whether it's derogatory or not, it's still you're you're labeling somebody, and I think that's the whole point of political incorrectness and correctness. Now, what about the political correctness of Lennon going on stage in Hamburg and telling the audience you're just a bunch of fucking Nazis? 
<laughs> That's it. <laughs> or Paul on the Hamburg tapes, you know, till there was you, the next one's a cha-cha-cha for Hitler. Yeah. And also let's not forget the Nazi salutes with comb moustache that Paul also joined in on. I think that that was probably seen as one of, one of my German friends explained something to me, and I, I don't think I've ever seen it in a book before. But I remember she told me, she said, uh, you know, Beatles sounds like a, a, a word, Beatles, which means penises. Yes. So if you're like, I think there's probably, or, or the dicks, let's say. Well, John says that on the 64 Christmas record. It's been a busy year, Beatle Peedles, one way and another, but it's been a great year. But he doesn't explain what Peedles, that's like, I thought that was just alliteration. No, but if you're German, you know very well Well, what he does, saying. but what I'm saying is that I'd never had it explained to me, except this German girl told me, she goes, well, it's like, it's like if you had a punk rock band, you'd call them the dicks. <laughs> You say you want a revolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. You tell me that it's evolution, well, you know, we all want to change the world. But when you talk about destruction Don't you know that you can count me out? Don't you know it's gonna be all right? All right All right You say you got a real solution You ask me for a contribution Well, you know We all do what we can But if you want money for people with minds that hate All I can tell you is, brother, you have to wait
right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. The Beatles. Naked. Post production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. He said, you know the color of your skin. He said, you don't care what it's all about. So Ted Heath said to Enoch Powell, he said, you better get out. Oh, he said, you better get out. He said, Enoch Powell, Enoch, you better go home. So Wilson said to Dubrovnik, come on, boy, we're gonna swing. We're gonna go back.
Knock, 